Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 3 episode, Passing Through Gestimity. But first, I want to say a special thank you to everyone who's been listening. This is my 50th episode. When I started out making this, this was done initially as a um, way to just express my opinions, talk about things I liked. Um, it was, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about some... Uh, uh, like in relation to uh, characters and in, in stuff in in Babylon Five and in uh, in other fiction that I have mental issues and I uh, go see a therapist and it was recommended by her that I um, just create something where I can have a voice where I can say what I want to say be myself express myself um and that was really important to me and i created this podcast i i had two i i, I had two podcast ideas and one i created with my best friend Lily and you can listen to that uh on nerd versus nerd uh and then of course i have this Kyle's internal monologue which is done uh just me talking rambling i know i'm probably not the most interesting person to listen to um, and I hope that people who do listen find me entertaining at least, or, or knowledgeable, or whatever. I just do this because I can be myself, and I get to talk about things I love. I got to talk about my own writing process with my good friend Claudia, who came on and interviewed me all that time ago. I got to talk about the adaptation of Stumptown, uh, one of my favorite comics, into TV. Uh, you know, it was done by Greg Rucka. Uh, and it, it, it was so exciting to talk about that. And of course, now that's finished its first season. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've released comics like web comics and, and, and participated in tons of stuff, uh, since I, since I started this podcast and it really helped just for me to be me, uh, to just talk about whatever I wanted to talk about and yeah majority of these episodes currently are about Babylon 5 I'm most uh, like I'm I finished the first two seasons I'm middle of the third I got seasons four and five still plus a large majority of season three so we're going to be talking about Babylon 5 for quite some time in the foreseeable future but eventually it's going to move on beyond Babylon 5 this isn't just Kyle talks about Babylon 5. This is Kyle's internal monologue. And while I've only done a couple episodes about other things, um, and only had one guest, I want to have more stuff. I, you know, I, there's more to me than just Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is my favorite television show of all time. If my clear devotion to it and, and stating it outright isn't obvious to anybody listening, I love Babylon 5. But there are other things I love. You know, I want to talk about comics. I want to talk about movies. I want to talk about, you know, anything that really strikes my fancy. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like, th this podcast was intended to just be my be me be me. You know, it was just a way to get my voice out. And so I may do off-the-wall episodes like that interview that Claudia did with me. Completely different format than what, what it is me currently just talking to the microphone here. Um, I may do, uh, readings of some of my prose stories. I may just talk about writing. I don't know. You know, the, 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 my original plan 
is that any in my was that anything I did that was not Babylon Five related until I finished Babylon Five would be additional episodes, uh, just bonus episodes per week, and uh, due to time constraints and stuff, uh, and my own personal uh, stuff going on, I haven't really done a whole lot of that, but I've really wanted to do more, uh, and I'm I'm debating what I'm gonna do next on it, um, and whatnot. But you know. It, it, this is just a way to, for me to be me. So th this is my long rambling, uh, you know, uh, stream of consciousness way to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. Thank you for just letting me be me. Because I know I really could use that. And uh, just even if, you know, I have my Patreon and I don't like plugging it because it just feels very, I don't know, ins insincere. Um, and while it's mostly devoted to my comic work, I've been thinking about reformatting it um, and uh, to, to focus on my video essays, which I also do. I, I, I don't know if, I, I don't think I've mentioned my video essays actually on here. I do video essays as part of the Daily Fandom YouTube channel, so go check those out. They're all about, they're basically what I do here except a bit more focused they're not rambly and uh and whatnot in they're about comics uh, you know my one true passion and um yeah I, I, you know if you want to support me if you want to be continuing to be just me please feel free to pledge there you don't have to uh you know i'm gonna continue this content either way um because this this helps this is me just begin me so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for actually listening. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Babylon 5 content, which is what you probably came here in the first place for. <laughs> so uh, we are covering the episode of Season 3, Passing Through Gestemony, which, may I state up front, this is a magnificent episode. Uh, and I've harped on continuity, I've harped on plot, I've harped on characters, I've harped on just everything continuing. This, you know, Babylon 5 was an experiment in serialized storytelling, and this is pretty much not that at all. This is a very much a, like, uh, self-contained, single, one-and-done episode. Uh, besides from a, a couple continuity stuff... In regards to Lita, and of course, Brother Theo was introduced a couple episodes ago, and I pointed that out when he was. Beyond just that, um, it's entirely a thematic and social analyzing episode. This is about some really heavy topics. It's about nature versus nurture. It's about identity. It's about the death penalty. And it, it, it it's all about all of these things, and it is even about religion, it, you know, it, it, it's it, uh, what defines a human memories or souls or what have you. Like, it is, it is a massive episode to just tackle from a thematic standpoint. And I am by no means a philosopher, and I am by no means educated enough to talk about a lot of the topics, uh, you know, touched upon in Passing Through Gostemity on any great level. I'm going to bring my experience as someone with a degree in creative writing and as someone who's a 22-year-old guy. 
I'm, you know, I don't have much life experience. I am not uh, well-versed in a lot of these topics, but I'm going to try and address them the best way I can from my perspective. And just this episode is magnificent in the way that it handles its themes and its ideas and its social commentary, and it doesn't hold your hand. And we need more episodes like this. This is a genuinely heartfelt and meaningful episode, you know, regardless of the fact that it's not connected at all to the Shadow stuff, to any of the Londo and Jakar stuff, to anything going on on the ongoing amazing plot of Babylon 5 and the themes of that, it's still about something and it's about something that is important to talk about. This is one of the great examples of why Babylon 5 is, in my opinion, and I stress my opinion, the best TV show ever made. Because it doesn't pull its punches. It's willing to talk about whatever it thinks it needs to talk about. And to me, that's a signifier of not only good writing, but also just the signifiers of what it means to be good fiction. You know, there's so many fiction that wants to be escapist, and that's all fine and dandy. If you want to be escapist, go for it. But to me, I think fiction needs to have a larger goal. You know, it should be saying something. It should be about character and story, yes. But use those characters and story to talk about something. It doesn't have to be a mi big major issue. You don't have to tackle, you know, big societal issues like racism head-on if you don't want to. But you can tackle smaller ideas. And Babylon 5 has done that repeatedly. And, of course, the death penalty and nature versus nurture are massive heady concepts to talk about and heavy politicized concepts too um so i i'm sure i'm gonna accidentally step on people's toes and i don't intend to uh it's just i'm gonna be coming from this from my perspective so this is just what good writing and good fiction and good television is it's that simple there's a reason babylon 5 is my favorite so now Beyond me gushing about this, let's let's break down the episode. So I'm going to start with the latest stuff because that is the more overarching plot relevant, and uh, and also has the less screen time. And then we'll st uh, touch on the brother Edward stuff, which is probably the more fascinating. And then I will have a small spoiler section at the end here. So Lita makes her grand entrance, you know, grand return. She, uh, you know, she was from The Gathering, and then she showed up in, in Divided Loyalties back last season, season two. Uh, and, of course, we've had a telepath on the main cast since The Gathering, but all of a sudden, the third season, we don't have a telepath in the main cast, unless you count Ivanova, but again, once again, she's less than a P1, so that doesn't really count. We haven't had an official registered telepath, I guess is how I should put it. Uh, and of course, Lita returns, uh, and she'll she'll be kind of a reoccurring throughout this season. Um, she has some really fascinating stuff in the fact that I talked about last time her connection to the Vorlons, her pretty much obsession with the Vorlons that had been growing since the Gathering, because she was the first person to telepathically link to a Vorlon, that being Kosh, way back in the Gathering. And she's kind of become obsessed with the Vorlons. And we find out that she um, kind of... Uh, she, she, she paid a bunch of people off and uh, got herself transported to 
the you know Vorlon space into the Vorlon Empire. And of course, no ships were around. There was no there. There was no answering of hails. Eventually, the ship that she uh, garnered passage on uh, left her with five days of food and oxygen in an escape pod, and then left. And she tried everything. She tried electronic messages. She tried hailing. She tried telepathic messages. Nothing. And just as she was about to die, after the, the you know five days of food and oxygen had run out, the Vorlons magically show up. She falls unconscious, and then the next time she wakes up, she is on the Vorlon homeworld. And of course, she can't talk about any of this. The Vorlons are incredibly mysterious, incredibly secretive people. As we found out last season, they look like our angels. I've repeatedly brought up uh, about the moral ambiguity of the Vorlons. That the Vorlons. Uh, have always struck me, and I and I pose the question: Does it is, do they strike you that way? As they accept obedience at all costs, and that's it. All they want is your obedience, and to ensure that they're more than willing to play dirty pool. They're not. There there is no straightforward good and evil. Uh, you know, if this this ongoing war, the shadow wars between the shadows who are evil and the Vorlons who are good, that would be boring. That would be uninteresting. That would be standard, cliche, generic story. The more interesting path, the path that JMS takes, and the, what makes Babylon Five special is that this isn't the Vorlons who have, were presented as these all-knowing, godlike race. Um, as we find out more about them, no, they maintain their mystery and the the the, the strangeness about them as an intimidation tactic. And we see that here in the fact that Lita is basically in her physical prime. Uh, you know, you know, she she had several issues, you know, an iron deficiency and whatnot. That's all gone. Now, now it's just her just basically in her physical prime. You know, uh, um, Franklin talks about that, uh, you know, uh, Based on your stats compared to your stats when you first arrived on Babylon 5, it's as though you're five years younger than you were when you first arrived here. It's clear that the Vorlons did something to her. And that becomes the more evident at the ending scene where we have uh, the strange beam coming from Lita from her into Kosh. And we see that she has the gills that allow her to breathe in Vorlon atmosphere, much like Jakar had back in the Gathering. And there's just this entire concept of, can the Vorlons really be trusted? And as a consequence, because Lita is now wrapped up in them, uh, is she, can she be trusted as well? Garibaldi even calls this out, you know, you know, no one has ever survived and lived the tale to go to the Vorlon homeworld. She's the first person to arrive in the, you know, Vorlon homeworld and and return, and she acts like it's just a walk in the park. Does anybody else find this as creepy as I do? You know, th this is not a normal situation. This is insane, and she's just treating it like it's any other day. Once again, I pose the question, do you think the Vorlons can be trusted? Do you think their intentions are wholly good or is there a mix is there good is there bad is it all bad is it all good what is it you know um are the vorlons really the side of the light because we do have the army of light so there is a concept of the good the light if you will 
And clearly, I, in my personal opinion, I don't think the Vorlons are exactly representative of goodness. <laughs> Certainly not, as we'll get more into the series. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the spoiler section. So, I just wanted to bring up the Lita stuff because it is probably the more plot-relevant. Um, I do want to point out that it is a bit of a plot contrivance that... Uh, you know, she conveniently in the uh, brother Edward uh, portion of the plot, we need a uh, non-registered telepath, someone who doesn't abide by the rules to get the Centauri telepath to talk. Uh, which, by the way, we see him, you know, in a matter of seconds with mind linking with Lita, start screaming in pain and give all the information. Isn't that interesting? She was only a P5. What did the Vorlons exactly do to her if she's able to get information that quickly? Probably even quicker than Bester, huh? And he's a P10. So, uh, but what, what I was going to say is that it, 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 it's just really convenient that, of course, this is the episode that she magically shows back up to the station. And, of course, in the Edward plot, we need a non-registered telepath. La-di-da. It's a bit of a plot contrivance, a bit just convenience for convenience sake, but I'm willing to go along with it. Uh, I'm not going to poke holes in the plot like that. That's just not my style. I'm more interested in what the story is having to say, uh, you know, in what it's trying to say, what it's trying to convey, and the character motivations that I am about the nitty-gritty of, uh, of plot holes and shit like that. That's just never been... That's just never been not only my area of expertise or, or much that I care you know, uh, you know, there there are tons of great stories out there that have logical loopholes and shit like that, but their message means a great deal. So therefore, people like them, regardless of the issues they have in their integral main plot. Just my cup of tea, my uh, two cents, if you will. So, let's go to the brother Edward plot the far more interesting plot that has literally nothing to do with anything going on. And I've talked about before uh, how sometimes that can get annoying, especially in a show serialized as Babylon 5 that was experimenting with serialization. But this is one of those times where the plot, that, 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 that plot that has nothing to do with the overarching serialization plot actually not only means something, but is just as good. And you care, and you love it, and you want more of it. I talked before, way back in season one, uh, in that episode with the serial killer that Talia mind links with, that, uh, you know, the death of personality is a scary concept. Um, so, here's the thing. Uh, we do not, uh, you know, there have been tons of debate on the death penalty. And that is a largely debated and highly political issue. Um, I'm going to give my two cents. You can feel free to disagree with me. I don't care. I believe in everybody's opinion. I believe in everybody's ability to uh, have opinions. That's what makes us human. And, you know, if you don't agree with me, you don't agree with me. If you agree with me, more the power to you. I don't care. I'm just here to be me. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't like the death penalty. I think it is wrong. It is morally bankrupt, in my opinion. The, the entire idea of the justice system is not really justice, it's revenge. At least in my opinion, once again, I'm stressing this is my opinion, but 
we live in a world, at least in the U.S. here, we live in live in a country that sort of idolizes the idea that you uh, that if someone commits a crime, you can then uh, you know go against them and get them theoretically killed if the death penalty is legal in your state. And I live in a state where that is legal. Uh, and what makes you better than them? Say they went and killed, I don't know, a family member of yours. And you say, well, for that they deserve death. How are you any better than them? Are you... You're, you're, you're willing to kill someone. Granted, you have the... It's the classic pass-the-buck mentality. Oh, I didn't kill him. It was the euthanasia that killed him. Uh, it's the same idea of, you know, you know, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. No, guns were designed to kill people. That's what they're there for. It's the only reason they exist. And how does that make you any better to say, hey, I'm going to kill someone because they took something from me. They killed someone that was important to me. I understand emotions are running high, but that doesn't put you in a moral, like a moral and ethical, you know, uh, pillar at all. That it's it, you're basically doing unto others how they do unto you. Is it to quote the quote the Bible and this episode, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And that, that's the inherent concept of the death penalty and why I find it hypocritical and morally bankrupt. And Babylon 5 is a universe that takes place in the future, and whoever was in power clearly agreed with me, but then came up with a concept uh, that is just as bad, if not worse in my opinion, because of what it means on a psychological level so the death of personality is basically instead of uh, you know scheduling someone to be executed you are uh, scheduling them to uh have their mind erased their personality will be erased and then they will have a new personality implanted into their body that is programmed pre predisposed to want to help the community and aid everybody and do nice things. Basically, in a nutshell, you are killing the person and replacing them with someone else. You are keeping the physical body alive, but mentally you are killing the, the, the perpetrator of the crime and giving their body to someone else. This personality has predefined ideals. So in effect, it is a it is basically a robot. It is it is predisposed to want to do these things and is programmed to do these things. Okay, you then add on the fact that we as humans are effectively the summation of our memories, meaning they're a blank slate. Any memories they have have been implanted into them, and everything that they want to do is to help others, help the community. They are being forced to do, you know, do time, do, do jail time effectively, you know, do work, do this manual labor for a crime they themselves did not commit. Their physical body did, but the mind inside the physical body did not commit those crimes. Not anymore. You've erased that part of their body, their mind. So thus, it's a brand new person. And over time, as they develop, 
you know, they may develop their own unique personality, as we see in Brother Edward, which I'll get to in a bit. But they started out as nothing but a robot, basically. A blank slate. And they had to rebuild themselves. And who knows what they turn into, but they already have predefined ideals. Isn't that playing God? Isn't that almost creating a slave race? You know, there is such of a thing as a good idea taken too far. And I think the death of personality, in my opinion, is that. Because there are so many ways I can see, just from little old me, 22-year-old, boring guy who lives in his house most days and doesn't go outside, rarely, if at all, you know, who, you know, is just a writer, just a guy with a creative writing degree, no one special, can see so many ways that the death of personality can be used and abused to create and do horrible things that, just imagine if, you know, can, can you really trust your government to pre-program a personality to put inside you to say this is how you're going to act you know even if you're willing to trust the government are you willing to trust corporations what about you know various other uh you know concepts ideas what 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 if what if police officers were allowed to reprogram you on the spot you know it, it can go to the take it to its logical extreme and you present yourself with a moral and societal issue that needs to be addressed. Thankfully, Babylon 5 does not touch that, though it would be an interesting concept, but Babylon 5 uses it to talk about the human condition. And this is where we t get to talk about Brother Edward and Charles. Brad Dwarf plays uh, two characters in this. He plays Brother Edward, and he plays Charles Dexter. Um, and I stress that he plays two different characters because we find out that Brother Edward, this really nice, unassuming monk who's uh, very kind, he wants to help other people, and, uh, and, and it's very interesting that the monks in this future are basically data analysts, which is a, which is a really nice uh, like extension of what they already do in real life, which is combing over manuscripts, but in the future they're data analysts, which provides them an income to support their ongoing mission, which as I stated when Brother Theo first appeared, was the, uh, the idea to uh, discover what God means to other people and other races. And he's, he's artistic, he creates these uh, glass figurines, and he discovers that there are memories lurking underneath him that he was a, a victim of the death of personality and over the course of the episode as the people who are uh, haunting him uh, and, and, and basically mentally torturing him uh, slowly get him to crack he realizes and discovers that he is a man named Charles Dexter who was the Black Rose Killer he was a serial killer and he must come with the realization that he did these horrible things. That he is Charles more than willingly killed people. And he talks about, there, 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 there's a couple of really great quotes from him near the end of the episode. It's like, uh, do you know what it's like to wake up one day and discover you are a monster, a murderer? How can I confess my sins to God if I don't even know what they are? 
And the entire concept being talked about and, and played with by JMS here is nature versus nurture. There's uh, Brother Edward, when he before he discovers he's Charles, uh, talks to Delenn about souls and the, the Membari perspective of the soul that a soul is a non-localized phenomenon that the un they are the universe made manifest the universe attempting to figure itself out so you take that and you tie it into the theme of what is going on with the brother edward stuff of it's nature versus nurture was charles slash edward born to be a serial killer is that who he is is his soul tainted by the the crimes he committed because if you ask me, his physical body is that of Charles Dexter. Is that of a murderer, a serial killer, or a horrible, despicable human being. But the mind that is there was a kind, artistic, and very diligent monk named Brother Edward. And these people that tortured him and eventually killed him, the, the family members... The husbands, the wives, the brothers, the sisters, the what-have-yous of all of Charles' victims kill Brother Edward out of pure vengeance, out of pure spite, just to get revenge. Because th they believe the death of personality was not as bad as I see it as. They killed who they saw as Charles. But Charles isn't there anymore. As we see... When, when 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 Edward finds out about the real his like personality, it finds out that he was the serial killer. Does he go out and immediately kill people? Does he crack? No, he starts having a crisis of faith, because he himself is a godly, kind, and diligent man. And he his biggest worry isn't that he's going to kill again. It's about how can I confess my sins if I don't know what they are. And Brother Theo has a great answer. It's like, God knows who you were, knows what your sins were, and he can uh, he can forgive you even if you don't know what they are. And there's a major lining of forgiveness, the w willingness to do what is right regardless. There's the parable of Jesus of Gethsemane, where the name comes from. You know, was Jesus willing to wait there uh, and be captured and be sacrificed for our sins. And once again, this is a religious undertone, but JMS is atheist himself, and there's uh, and it's not it's not stipulated under any religion. I happen to be Christian, so therefore I view it in the religious sense. But it doesn't have to be religious if you don't want it to be. And how Jesus was more than willing to wait there. He didn't have to be there. He didn't have to have the courage to sit there and sacrifice himself, but he did it anyway. The ability to accept a baptism of fire, so to speak. The ability to self-sacrifice. And Brother Edward shows, you know, the way he responds to the family members who come to take vengeance on him, that he was willing to stand there at Gethsemane. Something he didn't know he was capable of doing. He had courage. He was kind. Once again, Brother Edward was different than Charles and that's repeatedly shown I talked about before how the that the personality is pre-programmed to have certain sensibilities and to do certain things you know always aid the community and what better way to aid the community than drawing the monastic order but here's the thing 
he started creating those glass figurines. He was he had been Edward for years, and if we are to accept the the that the definition of human is the ability to learn and grow from mistakes, the accumulation of knowledge through memory, then Edward had become his own person. He was starting to you know show his artistic side. He was starting to express himself. And that shows very clearly he was a separate entity. Charles and Edward, two different people. And that's where the death penalty thing comes in, in the idea of revenge and justice. Sheridan even states the theme of the, or one of the main themes of the episode, at the end of the episode, where he says, where does revenge end and justice begin? And we see multiple people's perspective on it. You know, Garibaldi, the ever-constant cop who has seen some of the worst humanity has to offer, claims he wants, you know, electric bleachers. You know, he these kind of people make me want the, the return of the electric chair. And, you know, sometimes I, th I, I think, uh, you know, uh, hell, sometimes I think we need electric bleachers. That's a very Garibaldi sentence. Also, a horrifying sentence from my perspective. Once again, I am against the death penalty. But here's the thing. He he stipulates this. And I'm an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of guy. He's a cop. He's seen some of the worst things humans can do. And he believes in the justice system. He believes firmly in what he does. He doesn't see his revenge. Because when Delenn uses her retort, which I'll get to in a minute, he says... You know, no, only the people affected would be the bad guys. He does firmly believe that there is a good and there is a bad, and the bad people should be punished, good people will be fine. He believes in the system of justice, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just happen to not firmly agree that the justice system is wholly fair. And that's where Delin's perspective comes from. And I want you to go with me on here. Because uh, cause I, have, I have a thing here. Her, her saying and her perspective is uh, when, he, when Garibaldi says, I'm an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of guy. Delenn responds, so you support a system that would leave everyone blind and toothless. The concept here is that everybody, in a way, commits some sort of crime at some point in their life. It can be very minor. And you may call it cynical, but I call it more of being, you know, realistic in the way laws are written. The way laws are written is to deter the innocent. It is not necessarily there to punish the guilty. It is there to ensure a checks and balances system is there to stop people from doing, you know, things that they may normally do. For instance, imagine you see... A couple bits of loose change on the floor. Probably someone dropped it. What if someone ahead of you in the store, grocery store line dropped that, that, that change and they're about to walk out the door? Do you stop them and say, here's your change? Or do you pick it up yourself? Now, how you answer that is very telling of you as a person, but it's also telling of the way humans think. Because... If someone was fully innocent, if someone was fully incapable of committing crimes, that wouldn't even be a question asked. That would simply be, here's your change, sir or madam. You know, 
and let's ignore the money situation. How many times have you crossed the road simply because it's quicker than going across, you know, five minutes to get to a crosswalk? You just waited for the cars to stop and you crossed the road. That's that's called jaywalking. That's a crime here in the U.S. And the lens point is that everybody at some point, you know, regardless of societal standing or what have you, commits something like this at some point in their life. And it's important to think about that when when you are looking at a justice system. Is the system fair and balanced and uh, preserving the idea of justice and, uh, and, and understanding that justice is blind? Or is it directly attacking the... Uh, the 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 perpetrator of the crime in a revenge system. Once again, I, I I said that justice is blind. Justice is blind, but people, most people anyway, are not in the fact that justice should be served without emotion. But we as humans are incapable of doing any action without emotion, and therefore emotion rules. And that is the inherent issue. In the, in the death penalty and, uh, you know, the inherent thing addressed in this episode. Because, I mean, just look at the, the ending where one of the family members, the one that did, you know, killed Edward, has the death of personality put on him. You know, he's a new person. He becomes Brother Malcolm. And he's now joined the monastic order. And Brother Theo specifically requested him. And now, here... Uh, Sheridan is presented with an interesting thing. His anger at this person was perfectly understandable, perfectly relatable. He extinguished the life of a good, kind man. Because Sheridan never knew Charles Dexter, the serial killer. He only knew Brother Edward, the good, kind monk. And so, seeing that life extinguished and, you know, was abhorrent to him. But now he is faced with the man who holds the face of someone that killed someone he liked, but is now a different person, a new person. And he must be willing to, you know, forgive. And the question I hold to you is, would you be willing to look someone in the eye, someone that took something from you, it could be anything, you know, family member, a toy, what have you. It can be any severity you want to look at. Can you look them in the eye and honestly, in front of people, in front of everyone, you know, knowing that you will be judged, actually forgive them? Is it a sincere forgiveness or is it a fake forgiveness of, oh, yeah, I forgive you, but secretly you're judging them in your mind? Or do you not forgive them? Or can you legitimately actually forgive them and say, I understand. Can you do that? I know it would be hard. Because I've had situations like that. Not not to that severity. Just people who have betrayed my trust. Let's put it that way. And I've had to forgive them. I've remained friends with them. And I trust them now. You know, it took a long time. But I forgave them. And I learned to let go. And yes, it was a very minor issue, and I, I won't get into it because it's personal, compared to the death of a family member or something, but we as humans will only grow 
and evolve and become better human beings, move away from cynicism and towards optimism when we learn to say the words, I forgive you. And I think that's a very important message. Sorry for my long ramblings. This episode really hits, you know, hits the nail in the coffin. It hits me in the gut. It's very, very good. Now I'm going to go into the spoiler section real quick because I know that I have a couple of notes. First of all, uh, that Indian scene with Lita, of course, um, we will find out later that the Vorlands have the capacity to put segments of their souls into other people, other, other beings, and so. Um, it's just a, it's just adding to the untrustworthiness of the Vorlons, and I, I, and I'm, and I think it's important to address that. Like I, I've mentioned in the non-spoiler section what the Vorlons want. You know, uh, they they want obedience because I think that's very clear even from now before it's officially stated. But I, I just think it's important to remember that the Vorlons are not wholly good nor are they wholly bad. They are at the best of times, incredibly morally gray. And I think it's very important to remember that they're manipulators. And and it's just, it's, it, it's a very complicated situation. And I know when I first watched it, I was not only intrigued about what happened to Lita, but I was like, oh crap, you know, what are the Vorlons doing to her? You know, it, it, I think not only is it, not only, not only is it an interesting mystery for the viewer to get attached to, but I think it's also a way, especially since we're nearing the fourth season, which is going to be the end of the Shadow War, that that JMS was really trying to nail the, you know, bang it into your head. The Vorlons are not exactly trustworthy. It's important to remember that. Now... Something I've actually talked about before, but I'll talk about again in, in brief, was the entire Sinclair plot. I talked about before that the original Babylon 5 plan, which was made at least 10 years before Babylon 5 ever made it to air, was the that, that Sinclair was going to be the main character. And of course, uh, Michael O'Hare had mental problems, and he eventually had to leave the show due to health reasons, which is perfectly understandable. You can uh, watch JMS talk about this on YouTube if you just look it up. And uh, Sinclair will be back. He's already been back once in the the, the statement, you know, the the the, uh, the video statement in Coming of Shadows, and he'll be back later this season in the War Without End two-parter. It's worth mentioning that I believe this is the first episode where the Valen concept of he is a Mimbari, not mourn of Mimbari, is brought up. I could be wrong, but this, to my memory, is the first time that is ever explicitly mentioned. And this is a case of JMS having to use his trapdoor, switch storylines around, and using it to work perfectly because there has been so much evidence that Sinclair would be Valen regardless of the fact that he was never originally supposed to be Valen in the original draft of the story that he is able to expertly add in this new piece of exposition that is like the final link in the chain that goes, yep, Sinclair is Valen. Boom. I love that. That's the showcasing of JMS's skill as a writer, that he was able to adapt 
and move forward and look at what had been pre-established and go, what can I work with here? Okay, I need to add this to make it really hit in people's heads. This is where I'm going. And then, you know, do the one-two punch of the reveal in War Without End. And that reveal is excellent. And I'll get to that very soon, actually, because, you know, that's later this season. But yeah, um, that, that's what I wanted to talk about in the spoilers, was just that I think this, to my memory anyway, was the first time that that Valen is a Mimbari, not born of Mimbari, uh, and that he came around 1,000 years ago is the first time it's actually mentioned. Of course, we've had several mentions of Valen before, but this, I think, is the first time he is a mentioned that explicitly he is a Mimbari, not born of Mimbari. So, yes, that, that that's this episode. Um... It's a really hard-hitting episode. It is one of my all-time favorites. Um, like, I love... You know, I, I my favorite character is Londo. I've talked about that before. So I tend to like Londo-centric episodes. And there's a lot of episodes I go to regularly. Uh, and there's some episodes I can't go to regularly simply because they're so depressing. Um, this is kind of one of them. Uh, in the fact that I rewatch it rarely, and yet it's so powerful... Uh, there's another one called The Illusion of Truth, which is in season four, which I get to when we get there. Um, and that that's another one that I have a hard time rewatching simply because it is so impactful and so emotional. Um, you know, this these are the kind of stories I look for. It's not exactly the kind of stories that you want to return to. It's not feel-good fiction. It's fiction that hits you in the gut. It's fiction that makes you think. It ma it's fiction that makes you feel. Uh, to quote Frank Miller... Uh, he's a very well-known comic book artist and writer. Um, you know, his storytelling sensibilities have kind of differed a lot since he was at his prime. But when he was in his prime, he was a godsend to the industry. And he once said, I, I don't want you to like me or my characters necessarily, but I do want you to feel something. I'm after your gut. And I think... JMS had a very similar mentality, and I have a very similar mentality in my own writing. I want you to feel something, and I want to feel something when I'm experiencing fiction. And Passing Through Gethsemane is so good and so thought-provoking and so socially conscious that it's hard not to watch and just let your mind wander about these situations and what you could do about it, what the future would look like as a result, and it doesn't pull its punches. It's more than willing to hit you in the gut repeatedly. And I think this is what makes Babylon 5 not only such a success, but also why it's become my favorite uh, you know, TV show of all time. It's because it's not afraid. It's more than willing to do what it needs to do to get its point across. To say what it has to say. But anyway... Thank you for joining me for not only the 50th episode of Kyle's Internal Monologue, but such a magnificent episode of Babylon 5. Uh, thank you again for listening for this long. Thank you for listening to my rambling. And thank you for letting me get the episode 50. To the next one. And to the next 50. Bye. Bye.